In February, we ended part one of how to read your Bible like a seminary student. And I know you've slept since then. And so I thought it would be a good time just to briefly overview not all the things that we talked about in those four or five weeks, but to briefly review what we talked about the last time, what we talked about in that last session, because we're actually going to take what we talked about in the last session and build on that tonight. So last time, about eight weeks ago, we looked at the crucial and often misunderstood process of biblical interpretation. And we asked the question, what is interpretation? And we've got a really good definition that interpretation is the act of building a bridge between the word of the past and the world of the present. I really like this definition. It's the act, if you're interpreting the Bible, when you interpret the Bible, it's the act of building a bridge between the word of the past and the world of the present. You stand in the author's shoes and you ask, what did this mean to him? Before you ever ask, what does it mean to me? You've got to stand in the author's shoes and ask that question, what did it mean to him? And that's interpretation. Now, we also last time asked this question, why do we have to go to so much trouble? Why do we have to work so hard at this? It's because we live in a different world than the author of the text lived in. Time and distance have thrown up barriers for us between us and the biblical writers. Time and distance have caused us to have barriers that hinder our understanding. Let me give you an example. Imagine if we were to somehow be able to transport. Do do you all remember the, the, uh, the old movie Back to the Future? All right, so, so let's just say that we could somehow do something like that, except we're going to change it a little bit. Let's say that we could go to Galilee in the days of Jesus and transport somebody, somebody from Galilee in the days of Jesus to Greenville. Now, if they arrived in Greenville, do you think they would have a little problem understanding the world in which they were walking? Can you imagine transporting somebody from Galilee to Greenville? And then trying to help them understand a cell phone, or a car, or air conditioning. They would like air conditioning though, right? That would be, that would be a big plus. We live in a different world, and that's, that's obvious. We live in a different world, so we have to work to better understand their world. So, last time we said there's three things you can do, and you should do when you read the scriptures. We said study the language. Look up words that seem to be key words in the text. And there's online tools, online Bible tools I told you about last time. Uh, investigate, investigate the background. Try to understand the cultural context. And then evaluate the genre. Try to discern what type of literature you're reading. Now, the reason I'm reviewing all that is because we're going to take that roadmap and we're going to build on it this week and next week at least. Maybe even the following week. So we're going to take that process... I kind of outlined the process for you last time. We're going to take that process, and that's going to be our roadmap for the next couple of weeks at least. So, tonight and at least next week, I want to talk to you about how to interact with the Bible. I don't want you to just read your Bible. I want you to interact with your Bible. We're going to learn some steps to interact with our Bible. We're going to take that roadmap. And try to give you some practical ways to study the language and study the background. And understand the genre of scripture. 
So basically what I introduced to you last time, we're going to dig into this time. Now Richard Letterer wrote a fun little essay that I want to read a little bit of it. It's an essay entitled, English is a Crazy Language. And let me just read, I'm not going to read the whole thing, let me just read you a little bit from his essay, English is a Crazy Language. He said, there is no egg in eggplant and no ham in hamburger. English muffins weren't invented in England or French fries in France. We take English for granted, but when we explore its paradoxes, we find that quicksand can work slowly and boxing rings are square. Public bathrooms have no baths, and a guinea pig is neither a pig nor from Guinea. Why is it that a writer writes but fingers don't thing? If the plural of tooth is teeth, shouldn't the plural of booth be beef? If the teacher taught, why isn't it true that the preacher prought? If a vegetarian eats vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? Sometimes I wonder if all English speakers would some, uh, should be committed to an asylum for the verbally insane. In what other language do people drive on a parkway and park on a driveway? Or recite at a play and play at a recital? Or have noses that run and feet that smell? How can a slim chance and a fat chance be the same? And a wise man and a wise guy are opposites. You have to marvel at the unique lunacy of a language in which your house can burn up as it burns down. And in which you fill in a form by filling it out. And in which your alarm clock goes off by going on. English was invented by people, not computers, and it reflects the creativity of the human race. Which, of course, isn't really a race at all. And that is why when I wind up my watch, I start it. But when I wind up this essay, I end it. Anyone who has learned English as a second language would probably amen that article. English is indeed a very difficult language. And he's making the point about the simplicity and the complexity of, com of communication. That when we're trying to communicate it, it seems so simple. That many times they are simple words, but it can be so complex. Let me show you what I mean. Let's, let's take a little test. I need your, your, your participation. Those watching online, I know you can't verbally participate, but maybe you can participate at home. Uh, let, let me just show you the simplicity and the complexity of our language. Uh, here's a little test. What's the past tense of show? This is not a trick question, by the way. What is the past tense of show? Past tense of show is showed. Put an ED, ED on the end. If some of you said shown, that's a past participle. All right, let's try another one. You can do better this time. All right, here we go. Here, what's the past tense of go? Went. Does that make sense to anybody? Shouldn't we just put an ED on the end of it, goed? No, the past tense of go is went. Here's another one. What's the past tense of eat? Ate. So here, in this situation, we take those three letters, we just rearrange them to make it past tense. Same three letters, we just rearrange them. What's the past tense of burst? 
It's burst. Past tense of burst is burst. <laughs> Are you starting to understand the complexities of our language? It's an amazing tool. Language is an amazing tool, but it's also an amazing challenge. Now, here's the reason I took a little time for that. Listen, 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 listen. We're taking our English language and applying it to the languages of the Bible. That's why we have to work the text. You're going to hear me say that phrase more than once tonight. We have to work the text because we're taking our English language in 2021 and we're applying it to Hebrew or we're applying it to Greek. And if we're really going to understand the Hebrew and the Greek, we are going to have to work the text. We can't be lazy students of the Bible if we want to read the Bible like a seminary student. I'm just going to say it that way. You can't be a lazy student of the Bible. In order to read the Bible like a seminary student, you need to at least think on a basic level linguistically. And I know that word is one that perhaps you don't like. I'm not real thrilled about it myself. But I will say this, there is not one verse of Scripture that is there by accident. And there is not one word in Scripture that is there by accident. Every word in Scripture contributes to the message of the Bible. There is grammatical structure in the Bible. There is literary structure in the Bible. And if we're going to understand what God is saying better, then we need to take a little time to understand the literary and grammatical structure. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. I've always found, though, that that's not something that really interests some people. You know, I found that there's basically two kinds of people. There's paper or plastic or beach or mountains or dogs or cats. There are some who like hot weather, some who like cold weather. But then there's this other one. Uh, and very rarely are people neutral. There are those who really love grammar and there are those who don't. I'm in the don't camp, in case you're wondering. I'm definitely in the don't camp. But... I understand the necessity of understanding grammar and the literary structure of the text in order to work the text. So as you study the language of the Bible, here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to begin by giving you one practical tool that you can use. I'm, we're not going to talk about phonetics. We're not going to talk about uh, semantics. We're not going to talk about conjugating verbs or diagramming sentences uh, that just gets very technical, especially when you talk about Hebrew and Greek. So we're not going to deal with those kind of things. I just want to give you one practical step that you can take that will greatly help you understand and enhance your knowledge of Scripture. And here it is. Here's the first thing. Identify the meaning of words in their context. And we're talking about basically grammar and literary structure. How do we get a handle on grammar and literary structure? Here's one way. It's a simple way, but here's one way to get a handle on grammar and literary structure. Identify the meaning of words in their context. While all words have a basic meaning, every word in Scripture can have a, a broader meaning or a deeper meaning based on the context. Uh, or I should say key words of the Bible, based on the context. We even see this in English, that in order to understand a word fully, we need to know the context. For example, I'm going to ask you a question, you respond back to me. How do you spell flower?
Okay. Which kind, somebody said. So you would spell flower one of two ways. F-L-O-W-E-R. That would be a correct spelling. But if I'm talking about the white powder you use to make biscuits, you would spell it. Context determines which way we spell it, right? Context clarifies the meaning of the word. If I use the word eight, am I talking about a meal or am I talking about a number? You've got to know the context of how that word is used. So when you're studying the Bible, one of the keys to understanding the author's words is to understand the context around that word. Does that make sense? The better you understand the context around that word, the more you can understand the word or words or phrase that the author uses. So here's a step or here's a a tip that will help you. Start your study in before you go out. Write that down. Start your study in before you go out. Think of your study of the Bible in terms of concentric circles. If you're taking notes, just draw a bullseye right there. Just just concentric circles, bullseye. Let me talk to you about that, that bullseye right there in the middle. The bullseye in the middle is where you start with a word or a phrase as you read it in a, in a text, what does the writer say about that word or about that phrase? For example, let's just try to get real practical. John chapter 13. Take your Bibles, John chapter 13. We're going to use your Bible a lot tonight. I hope you've got it with you and I hope you can turn quickly. John chapter 13. Let's just say that we're reading the text. We're trying to understand what John is saying in the 13th chapter. And we come to verse 34 Uh, And we recognize that Jesus is speaking. In verse 34 and 35, Jesus said something very significant. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. That's the new command. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As you're reading that text, lots of things ought to jump out at you. And you've heard me say this over and over, but when you see that word or phrase repeated, what's the word or phrase you see repeated in that text we just read? What's the phrase? Yeah, love one another. And Jesus said about that, that phrase, Jesus said, this is a new command. Now, that would be another thing we could study is the word new, but, but we're not going to go there for right now. Just notice that in this text, Jesus says three times, love one another, and this is a new command. So, here's the thing. What does the writer say in the text that you're studying about that word or about that phrase? Well, Jesus said, love one another, and he said it three times. And he said, this is a new command. And he said, this is the way people will know that you're my disciples. You've got to love one another. And so, you just try to understand all you can that the writer says in that verse or in that passage about that word or about that phrase. Dig as much as you can out of that particular text. That's the bullseye. But now we're going to zoom out a little bit. And number two is this. Does the writer use the same word or phrase elsewhere in the same book? As we're trying to understand this phrase, love one another, does the writer use that same phrase or the same word elsewhere in the same book? And indeed he does. Go over two chapters, chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 12. 
Again, Jesus is speaking. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Now here, he calls it a command. Here, the wording is slightly different. He doesn't say love one another. He says love each other. The wording is is changed slightly. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So Jesus is talking about, will you do what I command? And again, if we were studying that phrase, love one another, we would try to, well, what did he say in other places of the book about that phrase? Then we go to, to number three. Number three is, does the writer use the same word or phrase in other books he has written? This phrase, love one another, has John written anywhere else in the Bible using that word or phrase? And indeed, he has. He, he wrote quite a bit about it, actually. First John, go over to First John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. Again, we just, let's pretend we got our notebook out here and we're just trying to gather all the information we can about that phrase, love one another. So we've looked at the bullseye. What does he say in that verse or in that passage of Scripture? Then we broaden the circle a little, little bit. What does he say in, in the book itself? Kind of broadened it a little bit. Now we're looking at what does the author say in other books that perhaps he has written elsewhere in other books he has written. First John chapter 3. Verse 11, this is the message you heard from the beginning. You should love one another. Hmm. This is the message. He's writing, he said, this is what I've told you from the beginning. Love one another. Look, go skip down to verse 23. And this is his command, talking about the Lord Jesus. This is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. Here's that phrase again, love one another, and it's emphasized again, this is a command to us. Chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Here's, Here's how we do it. We love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, watch this, verse 11. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you understand what we're doing here? Do you see what we're doing? We could get our little, now I'm not trying to criticize open windows, but we could get our little open windows out, and we could be reading John chapter 13, and, and it says love one another, and we say, well, that's nice. And then we keep going, and it never sinks in. Or we could stop and say, boy, Jesus called that a new command. I wonder why he called that a new command. Surely he said other places, love one another, and And then if we start digging in and broadening that circle, we begin to develop a much greater understanding of what that phrase, love one another, means. But then there's a fourth step. You see it here on the screen. Do other biblical authors use this word? For the first three, we've just looked at that one author, John. What did John say in that verse? What did John say in the book? What did John say in other books he's written? And now we look at the fourth one is this. Are there other biblical writers who use this word or who use this phrase? And indeed, there are. 
Paul, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Paul says, listen, listen, God's been trying to teach you this, to love each other or to love one another. Go over to the right to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Are there any other biblical writers? Paul, yes, Peter is another one. Remember now, Peter was a follower of Jesus. Peter was one of those men who actually heard Jesus say, I've got a new command for you, that is to love one another. Peter was there and he heard Jesus say that. I wonder what Peter wrote about that. Well... 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. And you see, if we work the text, if we work the text, we begin to understand it so much better. If we work the text, we begin to understand it, that, that this is... Indeed, the Word of God to us. And so wherever possible, I would say this. Wherever possible, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Wherever possible, try to dig in. And before you ever run to a commentary and let a commentator tell you what the Scripture means, before you take that step, nothing wrong with that step. I do it every day of the week just about. But before you take that step, Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let me summarize what we've looked at so far. First of all, start in. Look at the immediate context. What does the verse or the passage say about that word or that phrase? And then broaden it a little bit. Look at other places in that same letter or in that same book. And let Scripture interpret Scripture. Then broaden it a little bit more. Look at other books by the same author. And let Scripture interpret Scripture. And then broaden it even more. And look at other biblical writers. What did they say about that word? What have they said about that text, that phrase? And let Scripture interpret Scripture. This pattern will keep you safe as you seek to work the text and study contextually. So, so those, just use those four things and let that be your guide to work the text. So, that's the first step. We're talking about linguistically now, studying the Bible linguistically, looking at the grammar, looking at the structure of of the Word of God. Uh, We're not getting really deep into that, but we're trying to give you some practical ways that you can do that. And so, here's the second step that you can take, and that is to look for the laws of structure. Look for the laws of structure. How How is that text structured? What's going on? In this text. Now, I don't. We, we likely will run out of time. One of my one of my great failures is that I over prepare. That's not a surprise to you, I'm sure. And so, I've, I've probably got more than we can cover here. But but there are twelve laws of structure that I want to go over with you tonight. As you're trying to understand the grammar of the Bible, as you're trying to understand the literary structure of the, of the passage, there are 12 laws of structure. 
And if we don't get them all tonight, that's okay. You sleep on it and we'll come back next Sunday night and we'll pick it up from there, okay? But we're going to give you each law. I'm going to explain the law and then we're going to look at the law in the text. All right? So let's just take our time and, and learn as we go. Here, here's the first, the first of the 12 uh, laws of structure. Number one, cause and effect. As you're reading the Bible, look for cause and effect. Let me describe what that means. One event, concept, or action that causes another event, concept, or action. So, so look for one event that causes another event. Here's some key terms to look for. Write these down if you're taking notes. Key terms that, that would indicate this is cause and effect are these terms. Therefore, the word therefore. The word so, just a little word so is an important word. The word then, T-H-E-N. And the word, as, or the phrase, as a result. As a result. So you're digging into the script, scripture, you're working the text, and if you're looking for what kind of structure is here. And one of the things you can look for is cause and effect, looking for key terms. Let me illustrate this for you in scripture. Go to the book of Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. So we're just reading, let's just say you're reading devotionally. And you're reading through the gospel of Mark. And you're reading Mark chapter 11. You come starting in verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? So uh, this, this is not cause and effect yet, but I just want to pause here because this is so good. It's an example of the different kind of hints you can get in the text if you'll look for it. People in authority... Look, look at the text. Who came to Jesus? The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. People in authority came to Jesus to ask him about his authority. By what authority have you done this? Who gave you the authority to do this? Verse 29, Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, now this, this is the conversation going on between these, these people in authority. They discussed it and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they all looked at one another, the parentheses, it says, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, uh, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, we've, in my Bible, I have to turn the page to go to the next chapter. You may not in your Bible, but when I turn the page to go to the next chapter, I come to chapter 12 and I see a word that is an important word. He then. Remember one of the key words you look for is the word then. He then began to speak to them in parables. Cause and effect. These people in authority had come to Jesus asking him, by what authority are you doing these things? 
They have this conversation, and then Mark makes this, this statement. He then began to teach in parables. Now, you say, well, Keith, you're making too much about that. Well, we don't have the time to read the parable, but Jesus in verse 1 talks about a man who planted a vineyard, and, and he goes on and tells this, this parable. Verse 12, look what it says in verse 12. Then, there's that key word again, cause and effect. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So, so here's a classic case of cause and effect. The people in authority asking Jesus, by what authority do you do this? And then Jesus tells them this parable, basically was a parable about them, and the Bible uses that key word, then they decided to arrest him. So the literary structure here is cause and effect. All right, here's the second one. Number two is climax. Climax. There is a progression of events or ideas that climb to a certain high point before descending. There's a progression in the text. Uh, It's growing. There is a progression of events or ideas that climb to a high point. It climaxes. Let let me give you an example of this in the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Look at verse 34. At least in the NIV, verse 34, what is the first word of verse 34? Then. Key word. Cause and effect, but also climax. Look at what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, if we had been reading through the book of Exodus, notice this is at the end of the book of Exodus. This this is the climax of the book. Don't miss that. Don't miss the the place where this, this is in the book. It's at the end of the book. And here's the climax. The climax of the book is this. The the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day. And the fire was in the cloud by night. And the sight above the house of Israel during all their travels. That's climax. That's the way the book ends. Don't just read that and and keep going. Don't just read that and and think nothing about it. The whole book has been building towards this climax. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was with his people. He had not left them in Egypt. He had not left them as slaves. And they were not traveling on their own as they walked towards the promised land. God was with them and leading them and guiding them. That's the climax the story, or at least the climax of Exodus. So here's the third law of structure. That is comparison. Comparison. This is one of the easier ones 
to really see as you're reading the Scripture. Let me describe it for you. Two or more elements are alike or similar, of course. That's comparison. You're comparing this to that. Here's some key terms to look for. The word like is, is probably the biggest, but also the word as, the word to, T-O-O, and the word also. Key words to be looking for as you look at this structure called comparison. Uh, let me show you this. It's so easy to see in Psalm 1. Psalm 1. The idea of comparison. And again, talking about the structure of a particular passage of Scripture. Psalm 1. Verse 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night. And then watch this comparison, verse 3 and 4. He is like, there's the key word, he's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like, again comparison, Comparing the wicked with the, with the, the godly. They are, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Two or more elements that are alike or similar and they are compared. Look for that as you're reading scripture. Here's the fourth one. And th again, this is one that, that's very easy to see as you're studying the scripture. And that is contrast. Contrast. Just the opposite of comparison really in some ways, two or more elements that are unlike or dissimilar. Contrast. You're two things that are, that are very different. The key term to look for or key terms to look for are the words but and yet. You're in Psalm, go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. looking at the idea of contrast, and here's what we read, and look for the term, but. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped, I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. And he goes on to describe. He's, he's describing the wicked and how they seem to have it easier than the godly people. Why is it that the wicked always seem to be carefree? Why is it that the wicked always seem to have more than the godly people? And he continues when he says, verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, here's another key word. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my, by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But, there's that word again, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. The law of contrast. 
two or more elements that are unlike, that are dissimilar. Let me just do one more, or maybe two more, and then we'll, we'll stop tonight. Uh, the fifth one is explanation or reason. Explanation or reason. In other words, an, an idea is presented, and then it's followed by an interpretation, or the reason is given. Uh, that's one of the literary things that you'll see, in, especially in the New Testament. For example, look in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Remember Luke now was writing this text, Acts chapter 11. He says, The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That was a big deal. That the Gentiles had received the word of God. So, this was such a big deal, verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, that is the Jews, criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men, people who were not Jews, and ate with them. So, understand what's happening here. There is this presentation of an idea, the presentation of a problem, if you will. And then what follows is that, is the explanation of that problem. The reason that things occurred as they did. Peter began, verse 4, Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. We won't take the time to read that, but that, that's just a, a perfect illustration that the problem is presented, the problem is stated, and then Peter says, let me explain to you how all this happened. And if you'll read your Bibles, you'll see this idea of explanation and reason being used quite often in Scripture. Um, let me give you, okay, okay, I'm going to give you two more. All right, here's number six. And then after that, I'll give you two more. And then two. Number six, introduction and summary is another type of structure, literary structure. Introduction and summary. This is an easy one. Opening or concluding remarks are made on a subject or a situation. That's so obvious. Opening or introductory or concluding remarks are made on a subject or a situation. Matthew chapter 6. Let me show you this. Matthew chapter 6. Here is introduction and summary. Matthew chapter 6, be careful, not verse 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So there's the introduction, if you will. And then there's the summary of what he means by doing your acts of righteousness before men. He talks about uh, praying before men and fasting before men and your treasures and so you have in verse 1, here is this introduction, and then there's this summary of what that means. We, we won't take the time to read that, but I think you can understand that Jesus said, if you do these things before men, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now let me illustrate that. Let me talk about prayer, and let me talk about fasting, let me talk about giving. Alright, so that's introduction and summary. Here's the seventh one, and this is actually one of my favorites. The seventh type of literary structure is pivot or hinge. Pivot 
or hinge. Let me explain that to you. Or describe it for you. There is a sudden change in the direction or flow of the context. There's a pivot. There's a hinge. There's a a sudden change in the flow of the context. A sudden change in in the flow of the material. Uh, For example, just this morning, we saw that in Scripture. I didn't take the time to explain that to you, but that's what we saw in Psalm 31. In Psalm 31, if you remember, remember those, those uh, he said, but I'm in great distress, and he had six mys, my body, my soul, all those kind of things. He had those six mys, and after he listed those six mys and told us how we, he was emotionally and physically drained, he says, but I trust in you, and I say you are my God, and my times are in your hands. That's pivot. He's describing how awful he felt and how awful life had become and how hard everything was. He's listing it for us. He gives us six different, my soul, my body, my spirit, all of those kind of things. And then there's that pivot, but I trust in you. You are my God. My times are in your hands. That's a literary structure of pivot or, or hinge Let me show you one more, and we'll read this on our way out the door. Matthew chapter 7. This is still pivot or hinge. just want to show you another example. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Watch this. Verse 1. At that time, Jesus went out through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to break or to pick some heads of grain and to eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. In the, in the eyes of the Pharisees, because they were walking through the grain fields and they were picking some, some heads of grain to eat, even though all they were doing was picking some heads of grain to eat, in the eyes of the Pharisees, that, w- that constituted work. And you don't work on Shabbat. You don't work on the Sabbath. In the eyes of the Pharisees. Verse 3. He answered. Haven't you read what David did when he and his, compar- his companions were hungry? And Jesus talks about that. We're not going to take time to read all of this. At verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful? To heal on the Sabbath. They've already broken the Sabbath in their mind. Or Jesus has already broken the Sabbath in their mind. His disciples did by working, by harvesting grain. Now that they're in the synagogue, they're asking the question, Is it lawful to heal on 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 the Sabbath? Verse 11, He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Now watch verse 14. But... The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill 
Jesus. There's the pivot. They're no longer questioning Him. They're no longer following Him. They're no longer criticizing Him. Here's the pivot in the story. Now they have decided they're going to kill Him. So if you will read through the Scripture looking for those pivots, they're not found every place, but you will find them in different places. And and it really brings the Scripture to life when you see a pivot where suddenly the direction of the the story changes. And uh, that's a, a really strong clue. Here's some important information that you need to look at and take in. All right? So we're going to pause right there. And uh, next time we'll talk about the other five laws of structure. And then next time we will also talk about how to understand the culture that you read in the Bible. How to understand their culture. Uh, What are some questions you can use to get a better grasp of the culture you're reading. All right. So God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being so patient. Thanks for tuning in, those online. God bless.